Blog Talk Radio. And welcome to the Day's Work Podcast on this 5 October 2017. I'm your host, Stu. Uh, glad to have you for our third episode. Got a very uh, interesting topic tonight. We're going to be talking about human trafficking. I'm going to say up front, though, that uh, while we've labeled the show PG-13, uh, there's a there, there's a chance just with what we're talking about, it it might even broach that a little bit. So, uh, parents, if you have children listening, uh, you know you've been warned. Uh, viewer discretion or listener discretion advised. Uh, my guest tonight is uh, Kimberly Williamson, who is also a personal friend. Um, who is a private investigator. So I, mean, I don't know how many people actually really know a private investigator, uh, but she's been working different sorts of child welfare and custody cases since 2011. And she has expanded her work uh, into missing and exploited children. And she would call herself uh, nowadays an abolitionist. Um, you know, human trafficking, I think is, you know, here in the States is probably something we don't think about a lot, but I think it's a much bigger problem than people realize. We like to think we're living in this enlightened modern age, but I would submit that a lot of the injustices and um, persecution of people, uh, victimization of people uh, is going on just like it, it always has. So, uh, Kimberly, welcome to the program. Thanks for being with me tonight. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, well, anytime. So, Here's uh you know here's the obvious question I always ask people kind of how they got to where they got how did you get into I mean I think start with how did you become a private investigator because that's got to be interesting in of itself and then walk us from there to where you are now Well actually I kind of became a private investigator on a lark uh my dad and I used to kind of joke about opening our own company and how much fun it would be but it never really came to fruition months after he passed away, I saw an ad on Facebook for a private investigator class. And I figured, yeah, I may as well take it. And so I didn't think I ever planned on it being much more than a funny story to tell at parties. But right away, I realized that it was something that came naturally to me, it fit my personality and my, my capabilities. And within a few months, I was working for the top agency in the state. And all of a sudden, this gag turned into a career. And over the last few years, it transitioned from handling child custody cases where we're looking at child welfare into um, more and more severe type situations instead of just concern on whether or not mom is taking the kids to school or feeding them. It turned into questions on whether or not a parent was abusing a child at home. And as the severity and seriousness you know, built up, I had to learn more and more about child welfare. And finally, in 2002, it really tested my my willingness to do this job anymore. Um, And so after the conclusion of the case, the the father was able to get custody and the children had to, to go into therapy and stuff. And I realized that a lot of what we were doing had to do with human trafficking and child exploitation. And so I I decided that that was definitely something that I wanted to pursue. It was something I wanted to fight. 
And so I talked to my boss and we expanded our services. And then finally in 2016, it was just a, a free for all. Absolutely anybody that wanted help finding their child or a missing persons, we would handle the case for free. Now, why, I guess anyone would take free help, but is this saying that the private or the, or the public authorities, are, are they not, are they overtaxed? I'm not going to say they're not up to the, the, the task, but uh, why, why have to bring in, uh, say, a private investigator? Well, it's kind of a combination of the authorities being overtaxed. I mean, we have 2,000 missing persons cases in the United States reported every year or every single day. And so there, there's the tax there. You know, a, pri- a police officer might have a handful of cases on their plate every single day, new ones. Whereas as a private investigator, I can make this my only case. In addition to that, I'm working with different organizations and volunteer entities that provide people who are willing to go door to door just with a flyer. Now, a police department doesn't have 100 volunteers that are willing to walk into a neighborhood with, with flyers. So we, we work really hard at getting the, the word out there very quickly. And also, we're able to dedicate as much time as necessary to contacting the media and to contacting absolutely anybody we think might be able to help. And so we, we always do this with the, the sanction and permission of the authorities in each of these cases. And usually it's not, I, I don't want to take credit for the children being found, but usually it's what's necessary in today's age to get enough people concerned so that those kids can come back. Okay, before I go to my next question, folks, if you want to get a question in uh, with my guest, Kimberly Williamson, uh, the number to call is 917-889-3030, 917-889-3030. And we're talking about human trafficking with uh, Kimberly Williamson, and uh, you can have your question answered. So now you would call yourself an abolitionist. I mean, that is a – there's a term that uh, – we certainly hear with respect to slavery, you know, back long ago, but, but here it is again. Um, tell me about the abolitionist movement. I, I assume you're not the only one that would, would call themselves that. No, it's, I, I'm actually surprised that it's not used more. Um, the, the word abolitionist holds so much power and so much meaning and considering the, the, how Big this is, it seems like we should be using that type of language. That I absolutely love. And it says, you may choose to look the other way, but you can never say again that you did not know. And so after that first child exploitation case that, that had to do with, uh, with exploitation for profit, you know, I found myself so frustrated at the language they were using. You know, this, these children were enslaved. And yet people kept calling it child abuse, but it was so much more. And I was desperate to raise awareness and I wanted to fight it and I wanted to get people on my side, but it just, I I couldn't find the words for it. So I sat down and I I got smart. I I started reading books and essays by Frederick Douglass, uh, William Lloyd Garrison, Harriet Beecher Stowe even. And one of the most important aspects of their fight was was the language and the imagery. And that's when I realized that instead of saying modern slavery, it was important to say slavery. And instead of saying fighting it, I needed to say abolitionist because so much of what they did then, we're still fighting that same fight today. 
Now, in working and in, in doing the work you do, is this a, I mean, you know, I've talked to you before and I've, I've heard about some of the stuff you're doing local, but how interconnected are you with other maybe private investigators uh, that have a similar mindset around, you know, to, in the, in the uh, multi-state area here or even in the United States, or I don't know, maybe even outside the United States. Yeah, I've, I've worked with several different nonprofit organizations that kind of connect us. And so through one such organization out of Texas, I connected with other private investigators from, uh, I think I've worked with them all the way from Utah to Texas up to here. Um, I think we even did a couple in New York state. But, I mean, there are definitely private investigators out there. Um, In talking to other members of my industry here in Virginia, I'm not sure that the information is reaching them, you know, as far as they should. You know, I I, I talk to investigators on a regular basis at conferences and stuff like that from the local area. And I ask them, hey, what do you know about human trafficking? And I'm always so underwhelmed at their response. They talk about uh, labor trafficking or foreign trafficking in you know, Southeast Asia. And I say, well, what about right here? And, and they don't really seem to know as much information as they should. And so I, I sometimes find myself disappointed in my own industry just because it, it feels like we should be doing so much more. We're literally professional witnesses. And we are in the heart of it. I mean, absolutely every place I've ever sat down to do a surveillance could easily be a, a vantage point for human trafficking. Yeah, and it would seem that that would really be a big enabler for fighting this would be all of these small uh, organizations, these community and local organizations like yourself, if they were much more connected especially with the technology we have to be connected, uh, it would probably uh, help turn the, turn the tide a bit, or at least, um, at least make your job easier. One of the things that I do is I take interns. These are people who potentially want to become private investigators. And, you know, they usually they're criminal justice majors or they're former police officers and we'll go on a ride along. And the first place I go is this local massage parlor that I know that they're trafficking in. Um, you know, at one point we went through their trash and found just trash bag after trash bag of condoms. We knew ex- exactly what it was. Um, I dropped tip, you know, tips through the different tip lines and it seems to sit there. Some, I, I guess they're, they're getting to it where there's something else going on with, with whatever's going there, but I'll take these, uh, these interns on the ride-alongs and I'll say, Hey, you know, this is what you should look for, for trafficking. And they, they always seem so surprised. And I, I would think that they should be picking up this knowledge through their criminal justice courses or, you know, their, their past experience. And it just doesn't seem to be the case. Okay. So now that uh, I think we've, we've already started to talk about some of the things you're looking for and we can kind of hit on some of the crimes, what, what kind of crimes are we, we talking about? I mean, it's not just taking children or, or even adults into you know, captivity. What, what's happening to these people? Uh, it, it's expansive. It's huge. I mean, when you talk about modern slavery, we're talking about, you know, the, the broadest definition is exploitation for profit. Um, that's labor exploitation and sex exploitation. And laborers, I mean, at a time, there was an idea of sweatshops. 
but really they're, they're domestics in people's homes. They're uh, working construction. They're doing manufacturing. They're doing uh, food processing. I mean, there's no shortage. If you have a person who gets paid to do a job, you can find slaves who are doing the same one. Um, the sex side is just horrific. I've seen them. I've seen it really run the gamut from child and adult pornography to what most people recognize as prostitution, and then it goes all the way up to captive sex servitude, which I think is a concept is going to be expanded upon greatly in the public awareness very, very soon, just because it doesn't get a lot of press, but it is a very serious issue that's happening right now. Um, I also suspect that in time most people will consider parent-child molestation a form of captive servitude uh, thanks to technology and what it offers. And then uh, another crime that's finally being recognized as a form of profit exploitation is called sextortion. Um, usually that's done via text message or social media messaging, but it, it, it's just digital communication. But the sextortion is basically an individual is contacted and threatened into doing something outside their character sexual, uh, lest they be an uh, inappropriate photograph be released of them or a video or something secret about them. Um, until recently, in spite of it carrying a lot of the same markers as profit exploitation, um, like threat, these pornography, sex acts for money, um, the FBI and the Department of Justice treated it very separate, uh, treated it very separately, um, especially for kids. Some municipalities were even prosecuting the victims because they didn't know what they were dealing with. And so it, it's finally being accepted as a form of uh, trafficking and, you know, obviously profit exploitation because they're finally seeing what's happening with the product of that sextortion. So, you know, you mentioned something about, and, you know, this is not the, the more heinous crimes, but I'm just curious. You talked about construction workers or something like that, or, or any job out there would, would have a, could be a slave performing it. How, what leverage would they use over someone like that? I mean, if they're already working a job, it seems like they could just leave and go somewhere else. So how do they keep these folks enslaved? Well, actually, one of the, one of the ones that just happened here recently um, and this happens after every natural disaster. You have people who are down on their luck. Maybe they're homeless. And see these ads on social media, you know, come work on my farm or come do this and you'll get room and board. I'll pay your way to get up here. And so for domestic cases in the United States, these people are lured out of state to um, someplace that they will be socially and economically isolated and they start working a farmhand job or a, a light construction job thinking that they're going to get paid and eventually the employer will withhold paychecks. And from there, the person is completely dependent upon this job for room and board or the employer will start uh, assessing them fees. You know, they have to pay $7 for commuting back and forth to work. They have to pay for electricity and suddenly they find themselves unable to afford to save up to break free of the cycle that they were in. So that's one way that they do it for the domestic ones. Um, additionally, once they're there, they're, they have no way to get out. They have no way to get home. There's, you know, we have a hotline for 
who do this. They can call, they can get on any Greyhound bus anywhere in the United States and go home. There's no charge. But we don't have anything like that for adults. If an adult goes through and says, oh, well, I want to go home now, people kind of laugh and say, well, good luck with that. So with adults, you know, domestically, that's how that happens. And then very similarly for the imports, the people who, you know, however it is they come into the United States, they end up indentured to uh, an individual that got him, them here. They're, they're reliant upon the job and they're reliant upon the money, but they are assessed all of these fees and they find themselves unable to, to survive outside of it, maybe because they don't have access to their um, their visas or their documents or because of a language barrier. They find themselves um, highly dependent upon their trafficker. And then from there, their trafficker threatens them and says, if you go talk to the police, um, you're going to end up deported. You're going to end up in prison. They'll take your children away. That's a really big one right now. The dream kids, a lot of the traffickers use that as a threat to their, to their captives and say, well, if, uh, if the police find you, they're going to keep your children and send you home. Yeah, it's powerful leverage. Yeah, it is. Now, and I, now I assume with some of the, you know, with the children that are abducted and, you know, maybe even some of the women that are exploited sexually, it's just captivity. They just, they just lock them up and, and, and don't let them go. It's actually a little bit different. I mean, the idea of child abduction leading to trafficking, that by itself doesn't happen the way people imagine it. You know, anytime I do one of these discussions for a group of social workers, the first thing I ask is, how do, how do children get trafficked? And the stereotype is that there is a black van that kidnaps them off the street or out of the mall and takes them away. And the, the reality of the process is usually the children leave the home willingly under the, under the auspices that they're uh, in love. Maybe they're going off with a person that they met and fell in love with online or somebody who promises them a better life. And the adult, the adult women as well. I, uh, I just had a woman in Houston after uh, this latest hurricane who was being contacted by a gentleman who said that he was in Chicago and he was offering her money and a job and he was, they were so in love. And so usually the, it's a fraud that lures them away. And once they're safely in the hands of the trafficker or the lure, that's when things go sideways. That's when they find themselves being threatened or coerced or were heavily manipulated. I've spoken to some uh, survivors who thought that they were still in love with their trafficker. And it took a, it took a lot of deprogramming to get them past that stage. So uh, the Stockholm syndrome does exist then. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's kind of the best case scenario. I mean, there is there are other processes that are much quicker that traffickers will utilize. Um, basically, it's called turning out. But you know, there are other processes that they'll use where basically they make this person's life hell. And until they consent to be sold willingly, they have to stay in this this bad situation. And uh, 
you know, that's the one that I've seen more commonly with the children that have been missing in our area. Um, so the, because of where we're at in Eastern Virginia and our proximity to Washington, D.C., we have organizations like MS-13. And so for them, they don't utilize the, the Romeo and Juliet fraud nearly as much, or they don't maintain it, rather, um, once they have a hold of an individual. They don't care if it's man, woman, or child. Uh, the, they'll go through that process along with it and because they know who they're dealing with their victims will consent and they will you know they, they appear to be willing participants but it's because of that process that they went through that you know it, it was a brainwashing process all right we're going to take a uh, short break and then we'll be back to talk with uh, kimberly williamson about human trafficking if you'd like to ask her a question Please call 917-889-3030, 917-889-3030, and we'll be right back. Number 25, the average cost of a slave in 2013 was between 90 and 100 U.S. dollars. Number 24, in most regions, 80% of trafficking involves sexual exploitation. Number 23, the remaining 20% is generally for labor exploitation. Number 22, the number of slaves on earth today is estimated between 20 and 30 million. Number 21, nearly 1 million of them are moved across an international border every year on the black market. Number 20, 70% of those slaves are female. Number 19, 50% are children. Number 18. Behind drugs and weapons, human trafficking is the third largest international crime industry in the world. Number 17. It generates approximately $33 billion every year. Number 16. Over half of that comes from industrialized countries. Number 15. Even for purposes of labor exploitation, women still constitute over half of Earth's enslaved population. Number 14. Organ harvesting is another seldom mentioned but quickly growing industry that benefits from human trafficking. Number 13. An estimated 30,000 victims of sex trafficking die each year from abuse, disease, torture, and neglect. Number 12. 80% of those sold into slavery are under 24, and some are as young as 6. Number 11. Ludwig Tarzan Feinberg, a convicted trafficker, said, You can buy a woman for $10,000 and make your money back in a week if she's young and pretty. Then everything else is profit. Number 10. A 2003 study in the Netherlands found that, on average, a single sex slave earned her pimp at least a quarter million dollars a year. Number 9. A human trafficker can earn 20 times what he or she paid for a girl, provided the girl was not physically brutalized to the point of ruining her beauty. The pimp could sell her again for a greater price because he had trained her and broken her spirit, which saves future buyers from a hassle. Number 8. The end of the Cold War has resulted in the growth of regional conflicts and the decline of borders. Many rebel groups turned to human trafficking to fund military actions and garner soldiers. Number 7. According to a 2009 Washington Times article, the Taliban buys children as young as 7 years old to act as suicide bombers. Number 6. The price for child suicide bombers is between 7,000 and 14,000 U.S. dollars. 
Number five, UNICEF estimates that 300,000 children younger than 18 are currently trafficked to serve in armed conflicts worldwide. Number four, babies are sold on the black market where the profit is divided between the traffickers, doctors, lawyers, border officials, and others. Number three, researchers argue that as the economic crisis deepens, the number of people trafficked for forced labor will increase. Number two, human trafficking is one of the fastest growing criminal enterprises because it holds relatively low risk with high profit potential. Criminal organizations are increasingly attracted to human trafficking because, unlike drugs, humans can be sold repeatedly. And number one, there are more slaves in the world today than ever before in history. If you liked the video you just saw, then consider clicking on the button at the top right to subscribe. Also, check out our other popular videos, 25 Funniest Google Autocomplete Fails, and 25 Famous Company Names and Where They Came From. If you're still itching for more, All right, we're back. Uh, this is the Day's Work Podcast. I'm Stu, uh, your host. Uh, should have probably cut that last clip short there, but that is from uh, the List 25. It's a YouTube channel, and they provide all manner of different lists every week, some serious, some you know more lighthearted, as, as you heard a little bit there, but uh, some, sobering, some sobering stats there about human trafficking. And so, Kimberly, uh, building off of that, you know, they, they mentioned, you know, 20 to 30 million. I've heard, he, heard even higher numbers of estimated uh, people in slavery. Any idea how big that number is here in the United States? How many people do we think are enslaved here within our own borders? Um, well, the official number uh, I take heed with or I take, uh, I take issue with is 100,000 children enter the sex trade every year in the United States. because this always blows me away when I see it. Do you remember how um, Ebola in Africa and bird flu in Asia were dubbed like epidemics by the World Health Organization? Yeah, yeah, it was going to, it was going to overcome us all. Yeah, people all over the planet were freaking out. They're buying masks. They're canceling vacations. And to date, there have been over 28,000, or just over, I think it's 28,400 cases of Ebola. Not even deaths just cases. Bird flu has killed has actually less than a thousand reported cases. Meanwhile, our most conservative and exclusionary estimate by the Department of Justice of 100,000 children, it, it's so underwhelming. I mean, 100,000 kids and we're not treating it like an epidemic. Now, there's another organization called Million Kids, uh, spearheaded by this brilliant woman named Opal Singleton. They've crunched the numbers, they've looked at all the different types of crime, and they estimate that there are over a million child sex slaves in the United States. That does not include laborers, it does not include adults, it does not include adult sex slaves. Now, if you look at, uh, you know, just slavery in the United States, these numbers that I'm saying, those outpace what we know is an epidemic, what the World Health Organization and the United Nations consider an epidemic. Now, worldwide, um, the, the best case scenario, according to the United Nations, says that there's 30 million slaves in the United States. They came out and said this at the tail end of 2016. 
you know, you're talking about 30 million humans. If 28,000 is an epidemic, then 30 million is a pandemic. So, I mean, how big is the problem? The problem is so big that we should be panicking, but it seems like we're not. Was well, that because it's it's just hidden from us? I mean, where 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 how how do we uncover it? How do we lift up the rock here in our own communities? Unfortunately, and I I am so guilty of this. Now, all the time as a private investigator, it didn't hit home for me, and it didn't I didn't realize what I was seeing until I saw a child being victimized. And that's when I re- when I when I got smart. And time and again, when I talk to other parents whose children have been victimized, they say the exact same thing. I had no idea what was going on. And so, I mean, I, I don't know how to broach that because nobody wants to hear bad things happening to bad, you know, to, to good kids. And it's such a hard thing to hear. It's so hard to hear. I mean, I've been to campuses and I've talked to different organizations and they don't want to hear it. They're like, can you clean that up so it's not so upsetting? But I think at a certain point, we kind of have to suck it up and go out there and upset people. We have to do, we have to at this point, there's no choice. Now that the, the list 25 also kind of gave some stats about who the typical victims are. Um, can can we elaborate on that anymore? I mean, so it said seventy percent were were children, fifty per, or no, maybe it was seventy percent were women, fifty percent were children. Uh, any other discriminators there that that we can add to that? You know, it, as much as there are definitely discriminators. I mean, within the the children that I have found myself looking for, the missing kids that fell prey, um, the it wasn't a discriminator. It was a predictor. Childhood sexual trauma that was unaddressed was a good predictor for future susceptibility to trafficking. But I don't know that, I I don't know if that was causation. And then you start looking at what is typical for slavery. You know, when I look at my cases, most of them were kids, but usually that's because parents ask for help. Um, but I've helped recover a soccer mom who fell prey after a, a bipolar snap. And I, I actually previously worked with a woman who's college educated who got lured by a man at her job. You know, and as far as the kids, the things that make that that we look for, I mean, you've got honor roll to foster kid, rich to poor and atheist to orthodox. Um, I've even recovered children of police officers and politicians. So I personally haven't seen any single socioeconomic factor that puts one person at more risk than the rest. But I, I will say that if anyone has a chink in their, om- in their armor and they're exposed to a trafficker, they are in danger. And you know, I've seen interviews with these traffickers and I've talked to their victims. They are really good at what they do in terms of recruitment and luring it's it's talking or we're talking about a process that's minutes it's just that quick are there ways that you know we out there in the real world can can maybe spot some of these uh these traffickers i mean i mean i'm sure it's not as obvious as the tv shows uh but you know how do how do we spot these folks i i i 
it's hard to answer that question without excluding so many others. I don't want people to get like this, you know, this pigeonhole view of what it looks like. I've been We're not all wearing like black masks and, uh, you know, or uh, a big black hat to identify it's a bad guy is what you're saying. Yeah, I wish it was. I mean, we've had cases, one was a soccer coach. Sometimes it's a family member. Unfortunately, technology has taken away all of the barriers to all forms of, uh, of exploitation. In the past, child pornography was child pornography. But nowadays, uh, inappropriate photographs of children is, are, are being traded as currency over the Internet in exchange for other things. You have different types of um, bad guys doing business with other types of bad guys and using this stuff as trade fodder. Or more, what blows my mind, they're using it for Bitcoins. And now Bitcoins are actually being accepted in currency countries. It's absolutely insane. Um, so, I mean, who could be doing it? It really could be anything. That one case, my, my vector case that kind of brought me over to this, this was a mother doing this to her own children. You know, and in terms of who's doing it on the outside, pimps and traffickers very rarely are the ones who are doing the recruiting. They use a, a person they call a bottom girl or a bottom boy. So it's somebody who's 17, maybe 18 years old, young, cute. Um, they're usually victims of trafficking themselves, and they're offered this promotion or this opportunity to where they can get off the streets or they can get out of the hotel room. All they have to do is befriend these people online and trick them into leaving. So, I mean, who looks like a trafficker at 17 or 18 years old? It, it's really, really frightening to know what's out there and then trying to, you know, trying to describe what it looks like. It looks like absolutely anybody you see on the street. But those individuals that recruit, they themselves are, are also enslaved, I assume. Uh, by and large, yes, I would say they are. Um, there are some exceptions, especially within uh, the gangs or especially the international gangs where you have gang members who are jumped in, who are doing it voluntarily. But um, that, that's definitely not all of them. Unfortunately, once they reach the age of 18, if they're busted for trafficking, because these are the ones who are placing the ads, these are the ones who are handling the money, they're the ones who are doing all of the business transactions. Um, it doesn't matter if somebody's holding the reins. If the 18-year-old who, you know, who got this promotion to, to bottom girl or bottom boy, if they get to that point and they're arrested, they're the ones who are going to do federal time and so they're prosecuted as though they were the mastermind behind it all. And the person who was holding their reins walks away free. Now, a little bit of a – I want to go down a little tiny side road uh, just because this was a practical thing you had shared with me uh, previously. So, folks, one thing I'll share is that the way I know, uh, the way I know Kimberly is uh, we go to the same parish. And we were working on something together uh, related to social media with our parish. And the topic came up about – Pictures, pictures of children involved in routine parish activities uh, being on Facebook. And, Kim, you had some, I thought, very interesting guidelines and some, some things I wouldn't have thought about, about having pictures of children, especially from, say, a, uh, a, a, a church setting and why those would be valuable and, and some guidelines for 
posting pictures on the internet of children. Yeah. Well, this, it gets kind of horrific, but the, the short version is that you have these, you know, these predators out there who are looking for content and maybe they can't produce it. So what they'll do is they will source or they'll locate photographs of children and they'll Photoshop and edit it to meet whatever their desire and need is. Um, so I'll go on social media and do photographs, but one thing that for them, especially preferential offenders, they like the provenance or the background and the story of certain types of photographs. If they know that a child comes from a particularly conservative background or from a certain type of background that appeals to a certain offender, it makes that photograph more valuable. And so we have concerns about putting all these photographs on social media and on the different websites. And so in talking to different law enforcement officers and federal agents, we keep asking, so what should we do? And the answer is overwhelmingly stop posting photographs ever because we're talking about millions of photographs every single day being stolen from social media and websites and put into the dark web or the deep web for these nefarious purposes. And if you remember when I was talking about these photographs being used as trade fodder and currency, they don't all have to be pornographic for them to become currency. And that's kind of what we do in our website was making sure that we're not supplying the material. Um, so the best guidance that I could think of and that has passed muster with the people that I have talked to was making sure that the photograph is, includes less than 20% of the, or the child takes up less than 20% of the photograph. And also discouraging photographs that are those candid eye contact photographs with the or eye contact images. And finally, I would encourage people to make sure that the pictures they're sharing are kind of the, uh, the action shots with a lot of people and too much going on to where there's just not a lot you can do with it. Um, so I, if you I have know to do there, it, that's what you do. Yeah, I, I know there was some other thing that I was going to, oh yes, I was going to suggest that you also don't do high def photographs. Um, you know, right now, like my cell phone has a 21 megapixel camera on it. The camera I had when my children were three had two. We have come a long way in a very short amount of time, and we're putting out these photographs that are so big that they can be easily edited and easily manipulated. But if we put out lower, you know, lower quality images that can't be blown up, that does a lot to hinder what they're doing because for them, they need to be able to see those little microscopic megapixels in order to do what they want to do. Oh, horrific. Now we'll get back to some more practical uh, stuff before we wrap up, but you know, I, I wanted to hit on that just because you, you brought it up and I, I had remembered that conversation. Um, you know, now moving away from the children just a little bit, you know, one of the things you hear a lot is um, the notion of victimless, victimless crimes, especially in terms of uh, prostitution or even with pornography. Um, maybe comment on that a little bit. Are, are they truly victimless? Is it just consenting adults in a society we, we, we shouldn't care? For me, 
after having met victims and survivors, I find it hard to believe that anyone would be opposed to ending slavery, but I know it happens. And that's probably the most common argument against abolitionist work is this idea of a willing participant. Um, every single speaking engagement lecture, there's always that one brave soul that stands up and says, but what if they do it willingly? And my reply, I, I used to stumble over this, but now my reply is how many people do you know would ever willingly work a job where a bad day at work means you're going to be beaten, raped, and robbed? I mean, that's, that's crazy to me. Not, you know, I, I can't imagine a healthy mind going back to it. But it, it also holds true within the pornography business as well. I met a woman, uh, I want to say three years ago, who left the, the pornography business. Uh, she was penniless and her entire body had been destroyed. Um, she couldn't go to the bathroom normal. Absolutely nothing about her worked right. of coercion and constant fear. Um, she always worried that she would end up broke and unable to provide for her kids. Um, when she spoke to producers, they reminded her constantly that she would never be able to find work outside of pornography. And they threatened her with, um, with starving her out if she turned down a job or a gig or a party, which meant not giving her work. So if she refused to do something particularly extreme, they wouldn't give her easy work to keep her fed. And so she was constantly going along with things because she was scared that she wouldn't be able to get more work if she didn't go along with it. And so for me, when I hear stories like this, um, it, it triggers a word that we use within the, the trafficking business, but it applies here. It's called survival sex, you know, where your next meal is dependent upon you going through with this. And so I say that if 30 years of regulation can't guarantee a porn actress won't be raped for profit, I don't see how we could ever regulate a $99 billion sex trafficking industry. All right, let's, uh, let's go ahead and we'll take another break there. Uh, if you want to give uh, Kimberly a, uh, a question, please call in 917-889-3030, 917-889-3030. Three zero. This is the Day's Work Podcast. I'm Stu, your host, and we'll be right back. Slowly, all too slowly, our world is waking up to the pervasive evil of human trafficking. It affects 36 million victims, one-half of them children. Human trafficking is a scourge of our time. It is a modern form of slavery. It earns its perpetrators $150 billion annually in illegal profits. Pope Francis has set February 8th as the first international day of prayer and reflection against human trafficking. The issue is high on the Pope's agenda. Cardinal Peter Turkson, who's head of the Vatican Office for Justice and Peace, says that this initiative of the Holy Father is a global mobilization. He calls us to move from awareness to prayer, from prayer to solidarity, from solidarity to action, until slavery and trafficking are no more. We should be very grateful to the many in our world, especially women religious, who have brought this cause to a real priority. 
St. Josephine Baquita, yourself a victim of slavery and patron saint of trafficking victims, pray for an end to this horror. Pray for victims. Pray for us. Wake us up. Hey folks, Stu here from the Day's Work Podcast. Do you like what we're doing here? Are you interested in political thought and policy that doesn't fit into the typical left-right paradigm? Are you interested in providing a Christ-centered witness in the public square? Or do you support the traditional family of mother, father, and child as the foundation of our society? Do you share our call for the greatest possible autonomy for local governments? Or do you advocate for an economy in accord with the dignity of human work, ordered towards ownership and opportunity? Well, you might find yourself at home with fellow travelers like us as part of the Dorothy Day Caucus. We are an independent group of like-minded members from the American Solidarity Party. Find out more about us at our Facebook group, Dorothy Day Caucus ASP, and more about the American Solidarity Party itself at solidarity-party.org. Day's Work Podcast and my guest Kimberly Williamson talking about human trafficking. We had uh, my former bishop, uh, Bishop Richard Malone, now of the Diocese of Buffalo. Uh, he was my bishop up in the great state of Maine when I uh, did some tours up there uh, talking about human trafficking. Uh, that was actually from last year prior to uh, Pope Francis's call for a, a day of prayer. But the bishop calling us to solidarity with the Victims of Human Trafficking, Prayer, and Ultimately Action to End uh, What He Called a Scourge. And absolutely it is. Uh, I should also point out with the, uh, with the promo for uh, the, the podcast and uh, the Dorothy Day Caucus of the, made up of members of the American Solidarity Party. Hey, if you like what we're doing, affirm what we're doing. I mean, I, I don't know if I can say everything like, follow, rate, all this. Affirm what we're doing. Go to Facebook, follow us. Uh, like our pages, like uh, our posts, our articles, uh, go to iTunes, uh, give us some good reviews there, uh, Stitcher, uh, anywhere and everywhere. Uh, give us a good shout out and let us uh, gain some more traction with other people and do better things. All right, so we're back with the topic at hand, and let's get to some things and I don't even know, I'll be honest, uh, Kim, I don't know if this is stuff where <clears throat> these are things that there's even anything on the horizon, but what would you like to see done? You know, what, what can our government do? I mean, either locally, regionally, or even at the federal level to, to help end this. I mean, these things are already illegal, uh, so it's not like we can make them illegal again, but what can we do to make it uh, harder for these folks or to help the police and folks like you to combat them? Actually, no, we can't make it illegal again. I, I disdain uh, federal redundancy like that, but we can make them more illegal. Um, yeah, there, there's really no one thing that can be done. Right now, we need, to abs- we need to be everywhere all at once, and fixing just one thing here isn't going to help, but attacking supply and demand is, is really a big problem need to raise money, get grants, and get the funding to our police departments 
uh, to our sheriff's department and to whatever law enforcement and support agencies that we have to deal with human trafficking. Here in Virginia, I, I can speak to Virginia specifically because that's what I've dealt with. I've heard the same from other states with other investigators I've dealt with. Traffickers know exactly what cities are safe for them to operate because those municipalities don't prosecute pimps or they won't seek federal indictments for federal human trafficking. Um, last summer, I worked with an organization and we were rescuing two or three kids a week. And out of that entire time frame, only one case ended up being prosecuted or receiving charges and they weren't federal. It, it's an absolute nightmare to see that. And on top of that, the Johns are being let go. Even if they're purchasing kids, they're still only facing fines or a few days in, kit, in jail. So, you know, I say we need to make them more illegal. These people, especially the Johns, need to be prosecuted treated as sex offenders. And the law enforcement agencies need to be given the training, the manpower, and the resources necessary to prosecute the, these pimps, these organizations, this monstrous thing that's happening consistently in every single state and in every single municipality. So, you know, what can we do? We can start with that. Um, it, it's, it's so much bigger though. Um, the other side is also providing the victim resources. Uh, I've dealt with families and I've talked to victims who were never given an opportunity to get into counseling after they were recovered uh, because their case wasn't prosecuted. So we had to rely on the, the health department or child services, at which point parents have to give consent. And if the parent, for whatever reason, and it happens, if the parent doesn't give consent, the child is then denied access to therapy and recovery. Um, in talking to different um, psychologists and therapists and program managers that deal with victims of human trafficking, they describe a course of treatment that can take in excess of two years therapy. And then you also have to talk about dealing with, um, you know, getting them back where they should be in terms of school and job training and all of that. I mean, there's so much need out there. And there are a few programs, but they're not available to all of the victims. So locally and federally, I would say start with that. Find your local, uh, you know, your local police department, help them get funded, and also find your local victims advocates and find out what they need and help them get it. Now, how about, you know, and I'm not going to ask you to put uh, local authorities here on the spot, but, you know, What's the report card here uh, in the Norfolk area? How, how, how do local authorities uh, work with you, and do you think they're doing a, a good job here? I want to start by giving a shout-out to Henrico. They're amazing. They've got an awesome sex crimes task force. They have an awesome relationship with the Gray Haven, which is a victim's advocacy organization that gets them the treatment and training they need. Um, I have to I have to highlight them because they are what I wish every police department could be. Um, one of the detectives is Detective Wolf. Um, he actually is part of the Catholic community as well. So he is really big in Virtus training. He does a lot of the training for Virtus. And so he, he's gotten past a lot of barricades that I haven't been able to yet in discussing trafficking within the church. 
So I have to give them a super shout out first. Um, in terms of the Hampton Roads area, unfortunately, we're so thick with it. It's a destination location for traffickers, which means we have a lot of kids coming here from cities, from other cities, you know, especially Virginia Beach. And unfortunately, the law enforcement is so overwhelmed with it. Um, so, you know, I, I think that plays a big role in it. A few of the cities, I, I worry that they're not given the resources they need. If you go to missingkids.org or missingkids.com, you can pull up a list of children missing in each municipality. The ones who are struggling, the ones that need that help so desperately are going to be the ones who have black and white photographs and no photographs for all of their missing kids. Uh, so obviously, I'm not going to name drop which ones, but that kind of gives you an idea of who needs help right now so that you know who to, not who to complain about, but who to ask for help. Um, you know, in terms of working with us, I've never had a, well, wait, out of all of Hampton Roads, I've only ever had one detective who was negative. And, you know, unfortunately, I think that was a personality thing, not an actual professionalism thing. So overall, I'd say we do really well, but Hampton Roads, just by merit of its size and it, that tourist influx, it's always doing well. Okay, fair enough, and I think that's a, uh, I think that's probably a, some criticism local folks would be would be willing to take too. Now, down at our level, you know, um, concerned parents, concerned community members, um, owners of uh, businesses, whatever. What things can we do to help prevent these things uh, from happening to others or to keep our loved ones, our coworkers, or our friends safe? Well, in a perfect world, I would tell absolutely every single person that's listening to turn off all of their electronics and stay home. Um, I, I've never been so anti-development or anti-electronics in my life until I got into trafficking. Um, I think the more realistic approach would be to, to reach out first to parents. Um, they need to pay attention to the electronics and the software trends. Um, it, it's no longer enough to just be friends with your kids on Facebook. You have to download the software. You have to use the apps. And then you also need to be in there with your kids in the thick of it and reading their messages and then talking to them about the threats. Um, you know, let them know what the what the scams are and how the tricks work and, and encourage them to set boundaries and to enforce them. And if you're really looking for like a specific resource or a program, um, I would suggest going to nesteducators.org, N-E-S-T educators.org. Um, they offer resiliency training. They have programs that are a single day all the way to year long programs. You can do it at church, uh, your youth programs, you can do it at home, you can do it at school. If your school doesn't have a resiliency program, go to them. Go to the, the board and demand it. Um, but this resiliency training does much the same thing. It tells kids what to look for, to tell the difference between getting tricked and, you know, just a, an honest new person wanting to be friends. And also they do a lot of the same building that uh, I think we've kind of forgotten how to do without electronics you know, right there. Um, yeah, that's, 
that's the short answer. Unfortunately, there there are really really long answers um, in terms of how we can prevent it happening to loved ones. Um, I want to tell a story about you know, I, the the woman that I have talked about her a couple times through my social media and you know to to different people. Um, but she was the one who was contacted by this guy from uh, Chicago, and her aunt heard her story and was so freaked out because, you know, her, her niece is, you know, 20-something years old and is talking about this handsome man from Chicago that's going to take care of her and do all of these things. And the aunt was so scared, and she didn't know how to approach her niece. And so she contacted me, and I sent her a couple links to some articles that describe what that recruitment process looked like and that too-good-to-be-true fantasy that, that they sell. And I said, okay, you're not contact me. I don't care what time of day it is. I'll talk to anybody. And uh, they, they kind of went back and forth. The, the aunt was really scared that her niece was going to shut her out and just disappear and that they would never hear from her again. And uh, the niece kind of was mad, of course. I mean, the it's true. They always shoot the messenger. I've been the messenger for a very long time. They always shoot the messenger. And finally, the niece kind of you know, looked at it and finally read everything. And she, she and I ended up having a conversation where she admitted that it looked suspect. And, you know, from there, everything worked out. The niece didn't go. Uh, this guy, she ended up giving me all of his information. We reported him to as many authorities as we could. But the, the highlight there is that the aunt did something she was really uncomfortable with. And in spite of being scared that she was going to you know, alienate her niece and her niece was going to disappear forever. You, you know, as a family member, you have to realize that that's, that's the worst case scenario if you don't anything. So a, a willingness to have these really hard conversations with somebody who you suspect might be getting tricked, it, it's hard, but it's necessary. And having these conversations with our children about the potential uh for their technology to harm them it is hard, but it's necessary. Now, are there any other signs that you'd like to point out uh, that we could maybe see in our children or those around us, or even just a, a stranger that might be an indication that they are suffering from, from some form of, some form of enslavement? Uh, I have to say that is, it's a very loaded question. I mean, you, we have so many different types of slaves and so many people being exploited in so many different ways that sure. it, it, it's a monumental task to go through and pick a handful of things. Um, I, I will say if there's a place that we can put a link, I want to send you a link and it will have a list of just everything you could ever remember for a lot of different age groups. Um, you know, because as far as comprehensive lists, there are long ones. Um, yeah, I, I think my list is somewhere around 40 different things. And the, the list that I had compiled was for social workers, you know, and dealing with the kids at their schools. You know, for children that are known to us, I think the, the top things are going to be big changes or sudden changes. Uh, changes in social behaviors, maybe they're breaking up with, you know, breaking up with a longtime boyfriend or girlfriend for no reason, or their, their, their group of friends has changed, or their group of friends has disappeared completely. 
you know, changes in hygiene. Hygiene is a really big one that I have seen for children who are being victimized by somebody that they knew. Um, maybe they're not brushing their teeth or they're not washing their hair regularly. And I'm not talking, I forgot to take a shower last night. I'm talking, I haven't washed my hair in three weeks and it's standing up. The other things, changes in clothing style. Maybe, now this is particularly true for children that are kind of transitioning from, uh, or tr transitioning into early, early adolescence. Um, they might be starting to wear clothes that are too mature or hypersexual for them. Um, at the same time, for older kids, the, the teenagers, you'll see them wearing more conservative clothes. They transition from, you know, cute, stylish clothes to oversized shirts and baggy pants. Um, so those can be signs that you see, like I said, for children that are known to you, maybe a, a, a friend of one of your children. And I know it's something that I look for in the kids that I come into contact with, and it's pretty much held true. Um, changes in habits are a big one. Maybe they have a standing routine, maybe they go to youth group, maybe they go to church, and then suddenly they don't want to do any of that, or the other way around. Suddenly they turn into a social butterfly. Um, that was uh, something that happened with one of my kids, one of my earliest cases. Uh, she was a good student, but very internal, never really liked going out, and suddenly she wanted to go out all the time, and she had all these friends. And it turned out that uh, these friends were uh, her traffickers, and they were giving her benzodiazepines. They were giving her benzos. Let's go there, and keeping her chipper and functional while they did it. So you know, there's changes in habits and behavior, and those little quirks. We want to keep an eye on those. Now, the other thing I have to warn: these are also the same symptoms of stress. These are the things that we see when mom and dad are getting a divorce. These are the things we see when a child is in mourning. And they're also the things we see in a child who is about to make a major life transition from childhood to adulthood. So we have to kind of use caution and use common sense as we're doing it. But I always urge parents to pay attention and trust their gut. Um, more ones that are out there that I, I'd say account for a lot of my missing kids. I don't know how it stacks up against um, exploitation cases where the children were not missing, but rather were being exploited at home, uh, were self-harm. And, you know, that's cutting and, you know, anorexia, bulimia. I've seen a lot of other ones as well. Um, I, I recently got asked if tattooing and piercing at a young age could qualify as a form of self-harm. Um, I'm asking a, a child psychologist that I know, and we're kind of going back and forth. We don't know. And there's so much that we don't know uh, about child psychology, especially in this age group relating to this type of crime. So, you know, self-harm is one of those things that, that you obviously want to keep an eye out. Now, mind you, absolutely any of these, if you have concerns, it's worth seeking help. And, you know, self-harm is definitely one of them. One of the big ones that I've seen in my kids after they were recovered, because, you know, as an organization or as an entity, we'll reach out to the families to find out how they're doing, if they need more help, trying to connect them with resources. And one of the things that parents will report after their children have come back is, 
age regressive behaviors. Um, you know, we're talking 17 year olds playing with My Little Pony, using sing song baby voices, and truly behaving like a child or a small child. Um, those are something that I, I've seen reported really consistently, and I've also seen it reported consistently with other investigators and other professionals who have seen this as well. So I, I don't know that that's necessarily indicative all the time of trouble or you know sexual abuse, but it's definitely something to pay attention to. It might be your cue that maybe it's time to start exploring or asking more questions. Um, I've even seen adults having that age regressive behavior. So for me, that's a big flag. Um, really though, the, the list is super duper long. I have a, a website that I would recommend that people go to it's called stopitnow.org, S-T-O-P-I-T-N-O-W.org. Um, if you get into the online health center, you can look through uh, the, the children behaviors. And Stu, we can put a, a link on your, your page. Yeah, we'll get all of that from you. You send it to me, and then I usually send out a a note that the show happened um, and I'll also get it on the main page as well, but I'll, I'll plaster it everywhere. Okay. Well, this is a good website. It has age appropriate responses or age common responses to different types of abuse. It includes a lot of the depression, anxiety, um, compulsive behaviors, and a, a lot of the stuff that I just, that I personally don't have the professional experience to describe accurately. of stuff on this website, um, including advice for how to talk to adults who have been victimized who may not have sought help yet. Um, like I said, though, I mean, there's just so many signs. And I, I know you had mentioned uh, businesses. And this is one of my sticking points. And I do it all the time. I call it ambush activism. I'll ask a business owner, what do you know about human trafficking? And of course, you know, the, the response is, I, I'm usually overwhelmed, but I am occasionally surprised and blown away. And I'll ask them, you know, a handful of questions, what they know, and I'll ask if we can walk around and see what they can do. Um, usually I'll end up giving them a phone number to a hotline and a couple links to a couple of websites that describe uh, what human trafficking is, as well as what it looks like, and these behaviors. Um, my favorite one are mechanics. Uh, and I think this is somebody else I really give a hard time to. Oh, uh, restaurant servers. So those right. are yes. You know, those are people that come into contact with you know, with people in very unique situations and pharmacy technicians. It, some of my favorite people because they have so much training and they're so used to people being deceptive that I, I love how perceptive it makes them. And so there are certain times where a, a trafficker will, will come to them to pick up birth control or plan B or any of these products uh, to bring back to, to their harem for lack of a better word. And so I always ask these pharmacy techs, you know, what's it look like when this happens? 
and you know, it kind of goes round and round before they say, oh my God, I had no idea that's what that was. And so, you know, I, I, I love that ambush activism where it's like, just walk in and see, okay, if I were a trafficker, what could I utilize here? And what could I look for? And mechanics are another one. Um, you know, cars have car trouble. And so if I'm, you know, driving a, a wrecker car or I'm working on a, a vehicle, you know, looking for those little signs. I mean, traffickers actually advertise themselves via their vehicle. They put little symbols on there occasionally if they're gang affiliated and it allow it, it marks their territory to other gang members. And it also advertises to, I guess, the initiated or really good customers. So, you know, encouraging mechanics to identify the what type of traffickers are out there and their vehicles and get familiar with that and to report it when they see it, um, you know, and food servers as well. I mean, everybody has to eat and I can't imagine a, a trafficker going through and making a home cooked meal for a couple 16 year old girls. You know, usually they pick up fast food or something like that, but occasionally to reward the girls because it's an ongoing process of out eventually so you're going to look for the girls that have the tattoos the identifying tattoos which i think is probably something we could talk about um you know teaching the the servers on how to identify these tattoos and looking for signs that maybe these girls are too young maybe they're afraid and, and getting them to snap a picture and report it via their uh their state's fusion center i mean that that's kind of one of my one of my go-to things because every single case is so dynamic and so different. Well, uh, I think the, probably the bottom line with what you said there, uh, and, and we'll just, I think we'll, we'll end it to that. Uh, I, I think given the scope of, of the things that are out there are signs, um, what you said to the parents, if something doesn't seem right, then uh, trust your instincts. And that's probably advice for all of us. And maybe it's just really, we just need to be aware that it's out there. And uh, oh, that would that would be a good first step. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and I who said that they didn't say anything when something seemed wrong because they didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings or they just dismissed it because, you know, maybe they just didn't understand some complex social interaction that the children were having. And, you know, they kick themselves later for it. And it's really unfortunate because we, we have these instincts as parents for a reason, and we've got to start listening to them. All right, folks. Well, thanks, Kim, uh, for being with us tonight. Uh, she's going to get at me all of the info uh, that she wanted to share via links and whatnot. I will get that out to, uh, to everyone in all the usual places. So uh, a very uh, – a very good topic to talk about, a very good topic to raise awareness, and a very good thing that we need to keep in mind for solidarity with, with all of our fellow citizens because this stuff is going on. Uh, thanks for joining us tonight. Uh, we'll be back again in about two weeks. Don't know the guest yet. Uh, still juggling that around. But uh, if you follow us on Facebook at the Dorothy Day Caucus, then you will know who that's going to be. So good night, everyone. Uh, see you again in two weeks. And Whisper and Jack. As usual, take us out.
having fun. Pass me one by one. Guess I'll wind up like I always do with only me and my shadow strolling down the Oh, 